I, I gave this example to um, a person just recently in an advertising agency, and he really liked it, so I'll, I'll bring it again. One of the creative directors that I worked with preparing for a conference, he drew a sketch of what strategy is, and he drew a telescope yeah. and a sky full of stars. So you imagine that your objective is one of the stars in the sky. So your strategy is your telescope. And a tiny mistake, misalignment in the strategy, will result in light years mistake in the final outcome. So if we do, if we have enough research at the start, there is a much bigger chance that the strategy is correct because it already gives certain focus. Mm. And then a strategist, we just you know, fine-tune it and we find the creative interpretation of, of the idea. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Olga Krudry-Shova. Olga started her career at Saatchi & Saatchi Hungary and has since had an impressive brand and advertising strategy career across the Middle East and North Africa including time living and working from Dubai for leading agencies YNR, Saatchi and Saatchi and ODG. We have a fascinating discussion starting back at Olga's childhood as a smart girl in the Soviet Union, loving art and dreaming of becoming an art restorer. Going on to study a Master of Arts, then a Master of Science, then an MBA, and then finally the planets aligned and her career vision for the future advertising appeared like a bright shining star. Olga and I discuss an eclectic range of topics from cultural differences and consistencies to strategic thinking, creativity, risk aversion and what makes a good or even great marketing team and advertising agency particularly in this dramatically ever-changing world. We also discuss family life and why Olga recently moved to South Australia Let's not waste a moment on with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Thank you for joining us today, Olga. I'm going to start off. I'm just going to uh, jump right in. And we start off with a question in all of these interviews. What were you like as a kid? What were you like when you were eight? Can you remember? Good morning. Oh, yes, very well. I was very focused. I was diligent, responsible, probably too much. Yeah? What does that and mean, too I, much? Well, you know, you come from school, you do your homework, and then you play afterwards. Probably I should have been naughtier. Yeah. Um, and my mum says I never asked for things, so probably I should have asked a bit yeah. more. You was, like, you, were you, do you have siblings? Yes, I have a brother, but he's much younger. Yeah. So I grew up alone yeah. as, a, as a single child. Yeah. So you, were, you saw school as being, you, know, you, you went to school, you were studious, you went 
Yeah, I went to a good school and I thought if I'm in a good school, which is a privilege, I should really make the most of it. And I was lucky I had very good teachers with who I connected personally. Yeah. So it was a great time. So your parent was so what did you say? Your parents said you were a you were a good child and you were an easy child. Is that? That's what they say. Yeah, that's, that's what they good. say. Yeah, that's nice. So you weren't rebellious. I wasn't. No, I wasn't. Did you Did you know Did you know um, where Where did you grow up? That's where you grew up. I grew up in the Soviet Union. Yeah, whereabouts the, in the Soviet Union? Uh, I grew up in a city called Samara, yeah. which at that time was probably the size of Adelaide is now. Yeah. And it was towards the end of the socialist era. Yeah. So those were really interesting times. So what, what like what, what sort of values or what was the community like at that time as a young person growing up? That's a really great question, community, because then there was a great sense of community. What I really miss is just knocking on the door of your friend yeah. without a call because not everyone had a phone. Yeah. And just, you know, bringing a dish, sharing, just that flexibility, that mm-hmm. spontaneity yeah. that is probably missing today a little bit. Yeah. And we would uh, see our family friends maybe twice a week, yeah. just without prior notice. Yeah. We knew approximately the schedule. So and just, also you just turn up and just like turn up. that night? Is Absolutely. that like a weekend kind of every weekend you'd catch up or just during the Definitely weekend? Definitely weekend and maybe sometimes weekdays as yeah, well okay. because you knew the schedule and everything was much more structured than now. Yeah. Work was structured. Nine to five was much more yeah, common okay. so you would know people like So home. past five o'clock it was, it was seeing family and friends yeah, and having yeah. dinner. Yeah. So that was really a very social time. Yeah. Okay. A couple of decades were extremely social. Yeah. Sorry? A couple of decades... Those say yeah. 80s and 90s yeah. were extremely social. Yeah. Was it like a, a happy community? It, as a child, yeah. you see things differently. Yeah. Um, for me, it was a very happy community. I'm still in touch with those people that were my parents' friends, in fact. Is that right? As wow, an adult, yes, great? because they were almost like my friends. Yeah. I remember we, we had something, you know, in those times, you couldn't find everything you want in the shop. So if you got a product that was really difficult to find, we wouldn't just have it by ourselves. Mm. We would actually keep it, take it to our friends, and then make something. Yeah, okay. So that, that culture of sharing was really good. Yeah, okay. So did you know what you wanted, wanted to be when you grew up? When you were a little girl? You know, kids go through stages. Once they want to be a cosmonaut, the other day they want to sell <laughs> ice cream. Um, I, yes, I had a couple of visions for myself. One was I really, really wanted to work in restoration of art. That's a bit peculiar probably. Yeah. But I could visualize myself sitting somewhere in a basement surrounded by old paintings and having a strong light, sitting in a lab coat and doing that fine work. Yeah, wow. uh, but at that time, there, were, there weren't really many school choices if you want to continue education in terms of history of art and, and art. Where does, that, where does that come from? That doesn't seem like for a, like a lot of kids when they really think about that, but did you grow up going to art galleries? Did you grow up sort of... Yeah, my mum did a great job. Everywhere we travelled, the first place was an art gallery, and I still do that with the family, yes. But in general, I think this is what brought me into what I do, that just 
passion for creativity. Yeah. And we say that everyone is a creative person. You just need to bring it out. So were you an artist as a, a younger person? I wasn't. I yeah. wasn't. And at that time, um, obviously time was precious, and as it is now for children, you have to select activities. And I didn't go to art school because it was very far, but I had to go to music school. So had I gone to art school, I would have probably turned out an artist. Yeah. What music did you piano. play? What, what musical instrument did you play? Piano. Piano. Okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Like a good, proper girl has to yeah. play the piano. So, you were, so it sounds like you were fascinated by art, but you didn't necessarily have an art education, but you were fascinated by it. I right? was, yeah. but that, that level of art education was not available at that time and yeah. that place. Isn't that interesting? So what fascinated you about if you think back now, probably the, the time when you were a child, it's probably hard to articulate what you like about creativity. But what, what, what was it about, I guess, art and creativity that you, you think you liked back then? Back then and still now. Yeah. I still do a lot of art projects at home as a hobby. What I really, what I really value is that moment when you have a very strong vision of the final product in your mind. Mm. And then you work towards that. And that makes the process very simple then because you know where you're going. And when I was a teenager, I used to make my own clothes, which is also, I think, creativity. But I would never start a project until I saw in my mind's eye the finished product, how it would look. So it's that, you know, finalizing that image in your head and then that journey towards it. I think it's fascinating with with mistakes, with corrections. Yeah, that's interesting because the... Four interviews before this one, we did. We decided to do four interviews with artists, so it's kind of working out what their what their thinking was and just how. Yeah, some of it's just nice coincidence. We're talking about creativity and mm. and art and where that fits. But that yeah, it's, it's an interesting um, way you explain it. Having that vision and the creativity is building towards creating that 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 vision. Whether it's whether it's clothes or I'm assuming like a marketing campaign or it, it's it, that's creativity or whether it's a piece of art, whether it's a painting, whether it's a dance, whether it's Music, yeah. Is that, that fair? Absolutely. I think that's probably a little bit personal because I have that dichotomy. I'm a very efficient person. I'm mm. a Virgo, so I like things structured. I'm I like Virgo, to have focus. So oh, <laughs> I like to have focus. I like to have a deadline. So that's the more structural thing. But then the creative part has to coexist with that. So I think that comes from that, you know, having that vision and working towards it to have the outcome. That's excellent. So where did marketing come in? Were you at school thinking, I want to be a marketer, or did you excellent. fall in, in it by chance? Excellent question. <laughs> I went into marketing quite late. I was in my late 20s, and it's just interesting how you know, which paths life takes you. Um, I left Russia when I was 25, and I got a scholarship fully covered tuition and living expenses uh, to started to get another master's degree. So I took the chance and it was in environmental science and policy, which had nothing to do with what I had studied before. What had you studied before? Linguistics Okay. and teaching. Yeah. So by my first education, I'm um, a linguist, translator and teacher yeah. of English. And where did, that, where did that come from? That just came from what, a fascination with language? So My mum was a teacher, yeah. but she's a teacher and a very good one. And that was always in the family. My, my father also, he's a musician, but he teaches as well. 
you know, you want to become what you see in the family. Yeah. 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 So and that was a natural. Your parents had brought you up in a, a loving, caring environment, so you didn't want to rebel against them. You wanted to be like yeah, them. I, yeah, exactly. So it was a very natural choice, and studies were good, so I got into university easily. And then I got this scholarship, and I was really interested at that time. I'm a green person, so I was interested in the environment and recycling. I was observing how shops deal with that. So I took that chance, and I spent one year in Hungary. And then I ended up with these two degrees that were so different. Mm. And I, to be honest, I didn't know what to do. Because going back to the previous career didn't make sense. But starting a new one in environmental policy at that time, European Union was very young and there were not many opportunities. So one of my friends said, if you don't want know what to do, study. So I took another course and I did my MBA. Okay. And that is Where did when, you do that? Hmm? Where did you do your MBA? I did in Hungary, but it was the campus of... Case Western Reserve University yeah, okay. from the States. Yeah, and you're about to say. Um, and that's, <laughs> when, that's when all the three fields came together. So art, science, and business. Ah, that was great. And then you had that epiphany when you went, wow, it all comes together. Yes, and my friend worked in advertising, and from, his, from our conversations, what he was telling me about, I really got excited mm. that you know, I could find myself in there, and that was so true. So that's where, you know, as a strategist and as an advertising professional, you need to know a bit of everything and you need to understand a bit of humanities and sciences and business mm. because you do it for clients that run businesses. Mm. So I think that all the all three pieces came together then. Yeah. And is that, so you said that was a discussion with a, like a, a friend or associate who said, why don't, why don't you think about advertising? Is, is, that, is that right? Or you just, you just, your observation of what advertising is and your background, it all just, at that planets time, all aligned and you went, wow, that makes sense. And, exactly. Yeah. At that time I was thinking what to do and I'm naturally an observant person, so I was listening carefully and I thought, well, that might might be my my path. Yeah. yeah so I went to, um, my first job in advertising was with Saatchi and Saatchi. Yeah. It's a great company and it, it really felt like family. I had to sit an IQ test in the beginning. Mm. And Is that right? uh, yeah. part I started. Of, part of your entrance was yeah, and I, I was very rigorous, and I started very low. I started as assistant account executive yeah. in my late twenties, so all my bosses were younger than me in that time. Is that right? Yeah. And whereabouts was that? That was in Budapest. Yeah. Yes. Because it's interesting because I, I don't immediately think, and maybe because I'm a, I'm a Westerner, I lived in, lived in um, Australia for most of my life, or all of my life. Um, you don't think about the Soviet Union, Hungary, Budapest as being marketing kind of led places, but they are they well, marketing and brand led places. Yeah. Um, at that time, Hungary, I would say, was more advanced because in the Soviet Union it was planned economy. So even there are no Russian equivalents of marketing words. I'm I'm very much for purity of language, and if there is. A Russian word for something. I normally would not use an English word for that. Mm. But there is no word for marketing. Mm. There is no word for brief. Yeah. So we okay. had to use those words. Hungary was a bit more advanced and primarily because big brands were there. Procter & Gamble was mm. there. Mm. And they had to sell. They had their audiences, their products. Um, Toyota was there. Mm. They were my largest clients. So it was very, very, very good experience. And we were working for all of the Central and Eastern Europe 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think five countries. Yeah. So what, like, what were the things you liked about the, the reality of going into advertising versus what you were hoping it to be? Was, that, was it the same or were you, mm-hmm. were you, were you excited and, and, and the, your, your expectations were exceeded? or It exceeded my expectations. Yeah, in what yes. Way? First, people. Yeah. Uh, it really felt like family. I'm still friends. That was good 16 years ago or more. I'm still friends with those people on Facebook. They left. Some of them <laughs> left advertising. One of them has a yoga studio, but I'm still in touch with them because they did feel like family. We had our own cook at that time. We had a little kitchen where we had lunch all together as a team. Yeah. We watched Formula One races in the basement in our audio-video production studio. So those are great times. But in terms of professional life work, it's never the same. You know, you never repeat because marketing is like you you can't enter the same river twice. Mm. Otherwise, you know, in marketing, you can't do that. You mm. have to keep innovating. So it's the innovative side of the business. And also, because you have different function and different teams, you have client servicing, you have creatives. As a strategist, you are in the middle, so it's always new. Mm. And challenges are always new yeah. with every client. So that, yeah, so... Exceeding your expectations in the, the challenge and being able to, like, what did you say? You, every river's like, yeah, you can't enter the same river twice. You can't enter the same yeah. river twice. Can you explain that a bit further? Yeah, of course. Um, it, well, in professional life, or I think it applies to everything, life changes, mm. and a lot of people hang on to their past. And I think they get stuck in it. They might even get sad about not having things or not doing things the same way they did in the past. But you can't. You need to embrace that life today is what it is today. Mm. It can't be what it was tomorrow. It's different every day. You know, I think staying positive about what it is today and looking forward towards a different day, a different life tomorrow, I think is what it's about. And in my professional life as a strategist, it is also it also applies Every brief is different. Mm. Every challenge is different. If you keep, somebody said, was it Einstein? It applies to research as well. If you, if you keep doing things the same way, you'll yeah. end up getting the That's same exactly result. Right. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. Um, it was Einstein. Yeah, it's, it's ignorance is doing the, yeah, doing the same things. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll check yeah. that quote on it. So you, yeah. you have to keep innovating. And I, when I work, I use a lot of different models for different briefs, I would use different theories, different models, different types of our research. So it's always different. And yeah. that's what kept me going and improving myself as well. Yeah. That's, that, is, that is interesting. And it's, you, you see often in the agency world and, and research world as well about trying to almost package it up. Package it up. But really, like, that's, that's the beautiful thing about, obviously, we run a research agency about it's so eclectic. And that's I think that's why it attracts ad agencies and research agencies attract bright people because it's that kind of that nimble brain you need to be able to go from one thing to the next. It's, I think that's... Eclectic is a yeah, good word. Yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. So what did you do after Budapest? When I was in Budapest, I went to New Zealand for six months and I worked with Saatchi and Saatchi there as well. That was a very interesting experience. Um, then I came back... And everyone was so happy that I came back because they felt their brand was so strong and the family was so good that I even came back. (laughs) They didn't expect me to come back. And after that, my husband and I moved to the Middle East because of his job. 
We lived in Dubai for 10 years. I also worked there in advertising. It was really it was really funny because I got a job in two weeks since I, yeah. since I arrived. It took me literally two weeks because at that time strategy was a very new discipline and there were not many strategists. And although I came with um, different backgrounds, different religion and different cultural setup, I still found job very quickly because it's you know the the strategy brain they were after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously you worked in like have you worked across Western Western countries and as well as sort of like Middle Eastern and um, European so, countries. Like, like so, yeah. what, I guess what I'm getting to is yeah. sort of how do you see that? Are we um, is the world kind of homogenous or are we kind of uh, that we have kind of distinctiveness based on our culture. What have you seen? Are there sort of like we've talked about every river is different, but sort of like do you are there are there consistencies irrespective? I believe, and I think my experience also proves that that there are certain consistencies mm-hmm. because we're all human, and there are certain patterns of behaviour. And the best insight is the one that is universal that would work with any nationality, any culture, um, any geographical area. So a good insight is a universal insight. And you can see that campaigns that are based on universal insights are very successful. At the same time, of course, every country has its nuances, Mm -hmm. its history, its... um, its own dynamics, socioeconomic uh, dynamics. So, of course, there is that universal truth put in the framework of the culture mm. and the history and the, the landscape of the country that works together. Yeah. So when you start having global brands, like when, how does a global brand, like say you talked mentioned Toyota before or, or any global brand have it so there. There's a there's a global consistency of their brand, but also a relevance at a at a local level. What's what's your sort of thinking on, on that? I can give you an example. Yeah, go for it. Uh, one of my clients was Coca Cola, yeah. and in the Middle East, they had a project that was called Coke Studio. Yeah. It was basically a sing off competition, where they um, brought together artists musicians from different countries to have a competition. Mm. And it was an online, um, primarily an online project. So when we started working on it, we faced a challenge. So it was not Coca-Cola. So obviously the global values of Coca-Cola applied, but it was kind of a child of Mm Coca-Cola. So we could rely on Coke's brand DNA However, things had to be different in that part of the world. So we even faced a challenge when we did posts on social media. How should that brand speak? Arabic, but which Arabic? Mm-hmm. There are different dialects. So English, that wouldn't work because it was an Arab-speaking community. So we had to do an exercise where we define the brand personality of that brand in that culture in those countries, and then had to make decisions based on that. Yeah. So, and it was very successful. Even, you know, you had to decide whether the brand should speak as a male or as a female. Mm. Because when you make posts, it matters in choice of the language and the style. 
So definitely for a global brand to be successful, localization is absolutely necessary. And then when it comes to activations, when it comes to CSR activities, that's really an opportunity to connect with the local community. Mm. Because I also believe that successful brands don't just come and offer what they have. They actually become part of the culture. And what's more important they start to co-create the culture with the community. That's right. That's you hear about brands like McDonald's who, like there's the consistency of the McDonald's brand, but then they'll yeah. go into one country and they'll, they'll, they'll subtly adjust their menus to fit into that, that Absolutely. culture. Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah that's a very good example. Yeah, that's, it, it, that's interesting. Where, uh, where, where does it all begin? Does it, like, I guess you've got a... I'm assuming you've got a client that's, that's got a problem, like let's say a Coca-Cola or any other brand's got a, a problem or a challenge, either they're wanting to increase their sales or they, they've got a, a burning deck that, that things aren't working right or, or they've got some strategic objectives moving forward. Uh, like where does it... Like where, that discussion between a, a creative agency or a strategist and I guess a brand leader, a brand custodian or a brand manager... Where, where does it where does it start? What, what's, what's required to make like a yeah to make the brand strategy work moving forward? I think it all starts from um, desire to grow. They also say if you're not growing, you're stagnating, mm. and then eventually dying as a brand. So that desire to grow needs also um, to, to it, it asks to define a path, how to grow, where to grow. So. It sometimes starts with a challenge. Something is not working or something needs to be improved. That's where clients would come with a business issue to an agency. Uh, it might also start with an idea. Mm. Because a client might have an idea. Um, or it can start just from you know need for next year growth objectives mm. yes and i can also give you another example i worked for uh, a client that was making condiments like sauces ketchups mayonnaise and the idea was to own the barbecue season yes. which was a lovely idea mm -hmm. so we did not come up with it they came up with it but then we took it forward so we tried to understand what barbecue season means to different people different groups of people different countries uh, we tried to understand how it is different from a regular meal, mm -hmm. and then we came up with a really nice campaign. Yeah. Okay. What What do you think is the making of a really, a, a, in your observation, of working with different marketing teams? So this is internal marketing teams. What makes a good marketing team well, compared to a one, a, maybe a marketing team that maybe isn't as strong and and maybe might be more um, yeah, more tactical rather than rather than strategic. Hmm. That's a tough question. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say each person in marketing should be should have a very clear vision of where the company going. Mm. Probably every person in the company, but particularly in marketing, and definitely should they should work together as a team. But I think most importantly they should not be afraid to ask for help. And what in agencies we, we often say, oh, if only they trusted us. That's that gut feeling. That you know sometimes 
you justify decisions or, or proposals with science, with research, mm-hmm. with, with numbers, with backup. But sometimes you just believe that creative gut feeling that that will work because mm-hmm. our creative directors have years of experience. They have awards. They have teams that they work with that have exper- cumulative experiences. Mm-hmm. So that trust in the agency is very important. And also, obviously, um, thinking long-term. Because mm-hmm. today with social media, it's so easy to just get consumed by social media management, by all the posts, by developing all those little visuals. It's time-consuming. It's just draining. Mm. But the big picture is often overlooked. Mm. And also, in general, I think it's a global trend which we cannot avoid. There is a lot of um, a lot of attrition in leadership globally. People come and go, mm. and they do their two years. And unfortunately, that's that's a fact. Even in business schools, they teach it today. Mm. So they do two, three years, and they are concerned about making the company successful in those two, three years, and then they move on. So that long-term thinking, I think, is quite rare to come across today. Mm. My, one of the fears I have when you look at different marketing teams just – uh, broadly, is that you? There's that discussion around creativity, or we want to grow, but uh, potentially high level of risk aversion. So they're sort of they're, they're actually not being bold and brave. And um, I guess sometimes you sort of have discussions around where have the bold and brave advertising campaigns gone because because advertising is so fragmented. So the the, the um, a marketing team can be about the rolling out another another social media campaign that. Um, is isn't maybe maybe isn't as brave isn't isn't thinking as broadly maybe it is more short term rather than medium or longer term um, and often we'd like we'll have we'll have projects where we'll be reporting back to see from the campaign activity they've had has the brand grown or not and and often it hasn't grown to the level that they they might and and because we feedback often that that doesn't mean it's not working it just means it's it's bloody hard to actually get things to shift up and it possibly means that. Either the marketing's not as bold and relevant to as wider audience as possible, or, or the investment's not as strong. So there's, but sometimes we have discussions with different organisations where it's almost like the the fear from the marketing manager or marketing director when they're taking up, I know the KPIs, the brand KPIs up to the board, is that it'll look like it's it's failing, but it's not failing. It's just that you know maybe the marketing team haven't got as much permission to be brave and bold as as maybe what they should. Where my sense is, and this is this is even before my time, but back, I know, back in the days of like the Madman era, and, and even in the sort of the you know, the seventies and eighties, where it kind of seemed to be big, bold TV campaigns, and that's the way it goes. I just worry sometimes that where, yeah, where 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 creativity is much more of a conversation. In reality, we're probably more focused on risk aversion. Your sort of thoughts on that? That's a big big statement, but you sort of. You, I think you're right. And from my experience, some markets are more risk-averse than others. Mm. I would say that the Middle East is definitely more risk-averse. Mm. I always looked up at Australia. I always thought that Australian advertising is really ballsy and really mm. brave. And I still believe that. So probably it's one of the best in the industry yeah. in terms of bravery. Uh, um, and uh, it starts from the top. It starts from the vision of the leadership. If the leadership, I think, give permission and give authority to marketing managers and marketing teams to go ahead and try and experiment, then they do. 
I'm sure every marketing person would love to be brave. Mm. They just need to be permitted to, to be that way. Um, again, listening to agencies sometimes would help because, you know, agencies normally present a safe route and a more creative, more mm. bolder route. So it's the, it's the client's choice. And sometimes we try to help them with reasoning, with justification to choose a bolder route, but it doesn't always happen. Mm. But I think every marketing manager and marketing person would love to be bold and win awards for So maybe that kind of that may be one of that's the key traits of a marketing team is you need a you need a leader that's willing to push back to the board or to exec to say this is what we need to do. I just I think that to me is the key one of going, well, if we're not bold and brave and saying the work we do is when we're monitoring campaigns or looking if they're working or not, sometimes it's like a tree for, falling in a forest and no one's actually heard it because they're not bold and brave enough and I think sometimes an assumption at a board level that we've invested X dollars on the campaign work, but it really doesn't it, it's not it's not enough or it's not strategic or it's not bold enough or there's a nervousness about putting the brand out there and, and maybe not yeah, um, annoying some potential customers, but they're not. So I, I, I think it's just a really interesting one. Uh, you're, have you had dealings with maybe senior execs in organisations over your career to maybe unpack why they're often conservative? Like let's say you talked about Middle East has maybe been more conservative and more risk-adverse. What's going on in their mind when they're being... Where, they're being protective of not being too bold. I think it's natural personal fear of failing in the job, mm. of having your boss say you did not do well. Yeah, I think it's very, very, very universal, and it applies to every level in an organisation. And being an MD or a CEO is a very tough job, mm. and people are actually they're very lonely there yeah. because they are judged by literally everyone. Yeah. So it's just natural risk aversion of the personality. That's probably why they do psychometric tests when yeah, they recruit CEOs. Maybe, you know, they maybe generally um, is the company's policy whether they choose more risk-averse leaders or brave mm. leaders. That's, that's kind of an interesting take. It's almost like you've got the reason why some organisations aren't as bold in their marketing and other activities or in their innovation is... Um, the CEO is worried about looking silly. <laughs> yes, it's, it's <laughs> and losing human. face, and you think, "Wow, that's quite." It's quite. Um, it's. I think we've I've often worked with organisations, and their CEOs is um, very wise, and they're very strong. But they're kind of t- at the end of their career, so they'll make statements like, "This is this is my last job before I retire." Um, I'm not. I'm not looking for another job. So they're not career CEOs, mm-hmm. but they're. And I think what what I've observed, whether this is in a government context or a corporate context, is they're the they're the bravest because they're going. Well, we want to make this work Nothing properly. And if and if their board says, "Well, you're fired," they go, eh, "Whatever." <laughs> <laughs> so I think yeah. it's it's an interesting one of how do you find it. But you also don't want to get the other side of a reckless CEO that that um make, that makes crazy decisions. But maybe I think that's a really that's a really fascinating one. It's almost how how do you how do you find that leadership team that can balance the risk of the not making silly risks, but also being able to be bold and brave enough to actually do it? So that's my observation. I've been in research for 25 years and just that sort of fear that we are getting more cautious about doing things that, that stand out. So I think it's knowing, knowing how to do that. Yeah. In today's world, there is an opportunity for trial and error. 
And I think more brands could try bolder moves, mm. maybe with smaller audiences uh, on in the social space. Yeah. Or and even then experiment yeah, that's right. and see if it works, maybe apply it on a larger scale. Yeah, that's right. Whether it's a, like a, a branding or whether it's a pricing or a pro- they could be yeah, trying something for even a, a short month or three months or two months like, and, and if it doesn't work, yeah. you don't keep doing yeah. it. And, you know, I, I said earlier I do believe in models in business and formerly a lot of big brands, I don't know, they might still do it, but when I worked on really big brands, like really big ones, they always started the year with a brand review. And they always looked at the previous year, what worked and why. And then they set targets and set objectives for the next year, for the year to come. So they would always learn from the previous activity what worked, what didn't. Mm. And, you know, if some bolder moves worked, then obviously they reinforced it in the next year. Mm. But it needs a lot of structure, a lot of planning. Mm a lot of discipline to have that brand review, bringing all the parties around the table together and having a look what we've done and what we've done well, what didn't go so well. Mm. What about when the, the simple measure is the brand's not growing as strong, like say the, I don't know, the top of mind or brand awareness or is not is not growing. Like it's, it's not growing at the level, but it's just, it, and that might seem from a, from a marketing team or a board perspective that what we're doing is, is failing. But it, it, it's kind of knowing how, how do you kind of take that in? Because I, I guess I can see some clients that will go, that's failing, so we're just going to pull the marketing budget where it probably actually means probably the opposite. It means actually to, to double down on the marketing but maybe think a little bit more strategically about how it actually is administered. I agree with you. In fact, the more difficult the challenge the more strategy is important and also the the less money you have, mm. the more strategy is important because it gives you focus. It reduces that margin of error in your campaign. Mm. And I think today a lot of companies operate with smaller budgets. That's why I feel strategy is uh, much more in value nowadays. So how does that, that's probably a, another good point of when you are a client that can't afford to have like say a, an omnipresent campaign on all the time on all media but you still want to grow your brand and there's lots of brands out there that are like that fantastic product good reputation want to grow their brand like what's that kind of client agency relationship to be able to get a small budget but to have it work as strong as possible that obviously it comes back to strategy but how do you how do you unpack that obviously agent big agencies big global agencies want to have a, a good chunky advertising budget but what about if they don't have that budget if you look at great campaigns that won awards very often they are low budget Mm. campaigns and they say and i heard that from clients very often they say guys we have little money so we expect something very very creative they somehow find a correlation between low budget Mm. and enhanced creativity because you have to think harder. But I would also say that on a smaller budget, targeting is extremely important. You need to find and talk to the right people. Actually, I disagree that blanket campaigns work well. I don't think you can be always on on all the channels. Um, 
is just not cost-effective, it's not commercially viable, and just doesn't make sense. You need really to focus on something. So and segment the market, find those core segments that absolutely. are more likely to buy your product and be the engaged right, and the right message and then engage those those yeah, segments okay. rather than just casting the net wide i think those that try to communicate everything to everyone they just just lack probably even brand dna mm. that gives them focus and certainly focus on in their marketing department mm. that's been what uh, got several organizations we work with that aren't only the permission to have a massive TV campaign, and but they're, they're they're fantastic, wonderful, wonderful brands. And I guess I kind of look at sort of saying, well, what, what what's the way in which a brand like a brand can grow? So a brand that actually is a really good product, and and their, their customers love them. And so how do, how do they grow it? So it's it's um their pro- their brand and their product is more relevant to non customers. So they can bring bring other people in. So I look at I look at brands like say Red Bull that just sells a can of like energy drink and and they've kind of extended into extreme sports and they do their, their videos. I think that's, to, to me, that's obviously that's a big cost and investment into to doing all of that, but it's a it's an indirect way of playing. But can, can you think of any examples of brands that you, that are, are non-traditional in the way they build their brand but uh, have, have been quite successful? Like a, a different, like a, a niche, niche product or a niche brand, it might be a retailer or a consumer product that has done it a bit differently, has, has thought about maybe working with a creative agency, has, has, um, has done something that's a bit left of field, left of centre um, to, to grow it. It's hard to come up with one top of my mind, mm. but I, there is a brand that I really respect for what it's done and how it's achieved um, or how it got where it is now. It's a brand in the Middle East. It's called Shuk. Yeah. And they sell shoes that they bring from Spain. Yeah. And I don't even think that they worked with any agencies in the, at the start. They just found their target audience very, cle- very quickly. Mm-hmm. And you know what they were doing? The owner of the company would, would host tea evenings. Yeah. And she would invite people into a home and put all the shoes on the floor. And women loved that. So yeah. that was marketing and that was mm-hmm. very non-traditional, probably mm-hmm. low-cost way to raise awareness about the product. And it also felt quite intimate and quite personal. And I think now she's grown out of that approach. Yeah, okay. Now she is doing advertising in social media and I think she even has a shop somewhere, a pop-up shop. But that was something that really got my respect and from the strategy point of view i thought that's a very very nice way to target first to identify your audience and then to target your audience with the right message mm. that was very very nice yeah thinking about things a bit differently um the, the what what makes a good we talked about what makes a good marketing team what makes a good creative agency what do you think sort of is a good structure of a creative agency and you've worked with, with a few and I've worked with a few. I worked with um, um, really big global agencies. Have you worked it's with a, any independent, sort of smaller independent agencies? Um, I did work with a French design agency. Uh, they, they, uh, their main competence was designing commercial retail spaces. 
But that was a little bit of a detour career-wise. Mm-hmm. For me, it was also very interesting, very good learning. I think what makes a good agency is it's a, actually a big debate today mm-hmm. because there is a transition in advertising industry and it's a very serious transition. Um, there is a threat from consultancy agencies today to advertising because everyone is trying to to do a bit of the same. That's right. Yeah. right. Like, the, like examples like the big four accounting yeah. firms now being marketing consultancies. Yes, and they are quite good at that. Yeah. And I've handled projects where they were handed over from those consultancy agencies and when I looked at the work, I thought it's really good work. So yes, there is a threat from that. There is also a threat from small digital agencies. So the industry, the advertising industry, is, is under threat. But when there is threat, there is also opportunity. And I think the the success probably lies in uh, flexibility, and then being able to pull different experts from different walks of life quickly for a campaign. So you never know uh, whether you would need um, maybe an architect for a campaign maybe a uh, well definitely all the digital experts today but maybe a fashion consultant so to think about the strategy and think about what like uh, what, what, what the opportunities might be and to brainstorm um, yeah we did one campaign for a mall which was a fashion campaign so we had to work with a fashion designer to help us mm-hmm. because we obviously can't know everything and fashion is very very um serious business Mm -hmm. and it needs deep understanding so we brought on board on our team a fashion consultant to work with i did once a project where we had to redesign a beauty floor of a mall and i had no knowledge that i did have basic knowledge of beauty stores but not enough that required was required so we brought also a beauty consultant Mm a very high-level beauty consultant, and I sat with him, I picked his brain, and then together we redrew the floor plan the way it should be. So again, it's it's that flexibility and that access to the network of different experts today. And that's, that that's, really, that's a really interesting take, Olga, because it, it's almost like the role of a creative agency is, a, is, is that network of being able to bring the right brains together to be able to think, well, like, what should we be doing? It's, it's a think tank. It's a, it's been able to think that through. It's, it's interesting. It's one of our interviews. I'm not sure what number it was, but we had Professor David Corkingbell, who came from the UK and he's been a professor at UniSA for some time. But he was in the Mad Men era, so he was in the UK in the Mad Men era. And he said, um, I think it was at uh, JWT in the UK, and he said, I think it, they had a petrol station that was actually connected to the agency. Mm. And you had to spend time in the in, in the petrol station to understand how it is, and so it was more of a. And he said like, that was just part of an agency. You had to run a run a petrol station, so you understood what a petrol station was like. And uh, and I guess what I'm getting at is that the way in which an ad agency thinks and operates has changed over time. It's like there's probably been some fundamental processes that go through and some fundamental roles, but it it likely will continue to evolve, and it needs to evolve with. with um, changing, you know, changing budgets and changing needs, and maybe in, in a heightened need for creativity rather than than just advertising. It's, it's yeah. There's one more thing that came to my mind. It's very very important that when you work on a project, 
that the members of the team, particularly creative people, they experience that product or service themselves. Mm. Because very often, with time pressure, well, here is the brief, here are a couple of days to work out the, the creative idea, and there is actually no time. The client didn't allow, or other projects don't allow time to go out, experience it, and it can be applicable to a can of beans or ride on a tram if you are making mm. a campaign for tram or anything else. So it's that personal exposure to the product before you even start thinking creatively. You know Nemo, Finding Nemo, yeah, the yeah, film? Yeah. The film director actually made all the crew members take diving courses and go diving yeah, before yeah. they made the film. So they exactly knew what they had to portray there. So they had that empathy. And the same works for advertising. Yeah, okay. And I think that's that's actually a structural problem that I personally experienced. I know there are reasons for that, that that's probably really, really important for coming up with a very good idea. Because mm. advertising, maybe I'm being a bit harsh, but can have a reputation of being disconnected from real people, of like not always sort of being aligned with like making it, doing a campaign based on quite a different, like a 40-something male doing a campaign aimed at young people and, they, and there's, there's a, a disconnect or, or, or maybe, maybe even a... Maybe a risk risk of that occurring if the, if the agency is not careful. Mm, well, that was always my job as a strategist yeah, to okay. make sure that doesn't happen. To and, create that bridge. And, and to if there is that. a strategist, I always say that the strategist is the voice of the consumers. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So it shouldn't happen that way if you have a good strategist on board. It really shouldn't happen. And I think whether it's a 40 year old or a 20 year old creative director, it doesn't matter. Usually there are teams. Mm. And in a team, you would have different ages, different nationalities. So it's. A, cumulative product um, but certainly and that exposure immersion into the product or service or whatever you're trying to sell is very very important mm. very important and I remember that um, we were doing a campaign for a tram um, and I decided to have a brief on the tram yeah and that was so different because people experienced it firsthand, and mm-hmm. there is nothing better than firsthand experience. Yeah, yeah. is it? And I think yeah, that, that's that's a good example of having. So the agency has the skill sets and the mind that the minds in the creative agency or the strategic thinking to ensure that they are being empathetic. So I think it's, it's but it even sounds like to me it's having it. So of having that. The checks and balances in place to go: Are we are we actually empathetic? Are we are we um, immersing ourselves in inside the consumer's world, or whether it's a tram or whether it's a shop or whatever it might be? So it, it, it's a, that those checks and balances, isn't it? Really, where, where does that where does research come in? So what like what would you if you sort of like research is more of a formal kind of word around some of the stuff you've already already been talking about? Like what like what's research to you? What's the importance of it? For me, research is often a, a very good starting point. Well, probably research comes in different forms at different stages. So the traditional classical research, I really, really appreciate when at the initial stage, the client is very well equipped with having researched different ways, all the basics. And I always say, I always ask them to share whatever they have because when I say, well, if, if we start at this level, say low level, 
then with the time you are giving, with the investment we have, I can only take you to the same mid-level. But if we start at mid-level, meaning we have all the brand documents, we have all the, the business strategy, we have all the research necessary, then I can take you much higher. So the starting point already predetermines with the time and investment given the, the level we can take it. So research is absolutely vital to start higher. And then throughout the process, um, unfortunately, there isn't often much time. So strategists have to do their own research, you know, dipstick interviews, just some observations. So these are all forms of research, mm-hmm. even the conversations they are also research. So you're, having, you're going with the assumption of saying if, if the client's been doing their research about their markets, they should have a good a good starting point. Um, Absolutely. And, and you can be a, a, a third party, external party, looking at the research and that gives you a step up in terms of what the strategy might be. Because often, it's it interesting up. your point you made about often there's not a lot of time to get going. There's, it's a, there's a timeliness about that so you don't have time to... Spend months and months doing a research study because it's it's go time and you need to get moving. Absolutely, yeah. and um, I I gave this example to um, a person just recently in an advertising agency, and he really liked it. So I'll I'll bring it again. One of the creative directors that I worked with preparing for a conference, he drew a sketch of what strategy is, and he drew a telescope yeah. and a sky full of stars. So you imagine that your objective is one of the stars in the sky. So your strategy is your telescope. And a tiny mistake, misalignment in the strategy, will result in light years mistake in the final outcome. So if we do, if we have enough research at the start, there is a much bigger chance that the strategy is correct because it already gives certain focus. Mm. And then as strategist, we just you know, fine-tune it and we find the creative interpretation of, of the idea. Yeah, that's great. That's good. Yeah, I think that's a really visual and really good example. Yeah, and no, it's so true. I agree. It's, it's so true. And then also very good research as a starting point gives us two, three uh, hypotheses that we can work with, see which one would have better creative impact mm. so it's you know it's the beginning of the job is done which is great so building on that sort of two three hypothesis um or, or clear insights like what's what's good research to you so as a, as a creative agency strategist what would you say is good research versus not so good research or maybe let's, let's mm. focus on the positive side and let's talk about the the good research what like you've already said that to a certain yeah. point but what what would you say is yeah look every research i can't say there is good research or bad research every research is helpful mm. every piece of research yeah. it's already something what i really look for in research and i don't always get so we have to fill that gap ourselves is answering the question why and I'm sure you can probably relate to that. Mm. A lot of forms of research, just especially uh, quantitative, they just give you the numbers and they say this is the situation. But for a good creative idea, we need to understand why that is the situation. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call the insight, really, is the cause-effect relationship. So why is that behavior happening? Yeah. So people aren't buying, why aren't they buying? Is, why? is that a simple... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
and then also um, that y might be slightly different. It might still be quantitative. Um, maybe it might relate to distribution. The distribution failed. It mm -hmm. was not enough or something else. But it really gives that human reason why. And that's where we have a strategy. We have to find that human reasoning mm. in that to find the human insight. Yeah. So the researchers need to be searching for why rather than just the how many or... It starts with how many, yeah. right, to identify the real issue mm. and then and then the reason why, answering the question why. And another thing, um, talking about bravery, we had, we visited Google, the team in California. Mm -hmm. And what their team said is very often when they work with a client that they realize that the challenge the client has identified is not right. With their Google tools, they actually managed to find that the challenge is different and they set the correct challenge. So if research could actually challenge clients and through research identify that actually the issue is not this issue but it's something else, that's also very helpful. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of fascinating. So I think it's a it's an interesting one in the research space of um Sometimes there's so much data that gets collected. I think sometimes a, a core research skill has been able to filter that back and be able to say it to really, yeah, like the deeper why and what the meaning is. So, so from a research perspective, from a researcher perspective, um, I think it's the, comf the, the, the confidence to be able to question and dig deeper from the client and know well, what, like, why are they doing the research or what... Um, what are their problems? Because often a researcher might receive a brief like we, you know, we want to look at our customer satisfaction or we want to look at to see if our what our brand health is. So it can be like that rather than, and I guess it's the researcher's role rather, rather than sort of just accepting that is to go, well, why does that matter and where are you heading? Uh, and sometimes it's actually kind of you're digging for some clients, you're digging and digging for them to say, Oh, we're looking to grow because we've 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 expanded. We've got lots of you know, our buildings grown, or our our um uh, our our costs of op our operational costs, or our factories grown, or whatever it might be. Um, and we've got a five year strategy, and we need to grow. Like that's that's what our boards actually said. But often from a from a researcher taking a brief side, you don't always get close enough for that. So I think that's probably I I think exactly what you're saying is that it's really about. It's 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 digging a bit deeper into one. Why are we doing this research? But then from a research side, it's thinking a bit deeper about what what actually are the answers because it's it's very easy to just to see the obvious, isn't it? So yeah, yeah. and in this sense, probably a combination of quantitative and qualitative mm. is always necessary because to answer that why yeah, question, right. your quantitative research will not give you that answer. Yeah, that's right. And again, getting I. Same thing that you're saying from a creative agency side, same thing from a research side. It's it's that, I guess, that importance of having a relationship and, and trust with the client to be able to to be bold and brave and confident and, and, and have that friction. I think that's a really important one. I think I wonder, uh, having a, um, you mentioned Sputnik the other day, he's a local um, advertising and, and branding guy, and I sort of chatted to him at the end of an event a couple of days ago, and I said, well, why is it that there's that sense sometimes that maybe advertising is not as strong as it maybe once was? Maybe that's whether that's a 
whether that's a perception or a reality, I, I don't know. And is, is that on the is that on the client side? Come come back to that not being brave, not being bold. Is it a skill set gap, or is it on the agency side that they're going? We're desperate to get work because it's changing times, and we used to have budgets like this, and now we're not doing TV, and it's fallen back. So it's I guess it's a really interesting one for me of in this like, scary kind of times we're in, changing times. But how do you continue to have those? And I, I'd say there's more opportunity now to, to be game-changing. But at the same time, maybe we're kind of losing that kind of that, that, that drive to do really bold and brave. So I think it's really almost going, how do you do that? And, and research is a critical role in that. Great clients is a critical role in that. Great agencies is a critical role in that. But maybe that friction being, I don't know, maybe it's that, you know, you know, I think you need that, that confidence in those relationships and having strong relationships across those three or and others to be able to not agree sometimes, maybe to like to Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Tension always results right. in better ideas. Absolutely. But I also feel that oh this is just personal feeling that advertising, the role of ad- advertising is diminishing. That's why a mm. lot of agencies don't even call themselves ad agencies anymore. Because previously we used to have what, three, four five, six channels on TV. So the chance of you seeing an ad on TV was very high. Today, our attention is so fragmented in terms of media that the chance of you seeing that Mm -hmm. ad is small. Yes, there are targeting techniques, but the audiences are so much more fragmented. That's why I think also successful brands, they go away from classical advertising Mm -hmm. and they do more in activities for people and i also to give you an example you know that last year in saudi arabia women were allowed to drive cars and to prepare for that obviously a lot of a lot of uh, brands wanted just to to jump on the opportunity and capitalize on it so i i wrote an article for marketing society based on that which was the right approach and approach in marketing and which was weaker so it turned out that, say, three, com- three brands did campaigns for that occasion. And two out of three were just ads, just yeah. videos, mm-hmm. films. And then one was an activity, it was an action. Actually, the company opened a driving school mm-hmm. for women. Wow like a a pop-up driving school for women that could prepare them and qualify them six months in advance for their driving test. And I think this is the time when actions speak louder than words. This is probably why advertising is maybe experiencing um, difficulties. And I wonder if it's an identity crisis to a certain extent. And i just throw one more thing into why it's getting challenging and it's whether it's challenging on a research side or on an advertising agency side it's that and it comes back to that risk aversion of going part of risk aversion is the rise of procurement so we have to be very careful and we're we're lucky we've got great clients we've got good relationships and i'd say those good relationships when you get into five ten year relationships you can be candid like we can sort of say it but the first job we do for them we're probably a little bit on the back foot we need to be very cautious we don't want to annoy them we don't because they don't they don't know who we are they've just given us the trust but i wonder whether that's the same thing in an agency world uh as much as it is on research agency 
world, uh, advertising and, and, and research agency world, it's um, when you're desperate to get the work because it's a procurement based model and like, it, it takes away that kind of that, 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 that desire to have, have friction and fight and, and, and work, it, work it through. I wonder whether it, I, I, I really, I think the, the idea of having creative agencies called creative agencies is quite brilliant. And it's kind of almost like one of those things you look back on and you go, it's really, it's kind of, um, I guess it's what they've always been, but it's a nice term rather than saying ad agencies, it's saying creative agencies. And I, I look at agencies like, like IDEO who were behind sort of a lot of Apple's design in the early days. And I go, well, that to me is a, a creative ideas agency, but it's not, it's not driven on marketing. And obviously marketing probably comes into it. It's probably about change and behaviour. And I wonder what, sometimes whether ad agencies haven't all adjusted, whether it's because of all the all the, um, the the challenges they're faced with in terms of just making sure that they they can adjust to changing times. But it's that whether it's whether it's a client going our, our creative agency is a management consultant or a research agency is a management consultant, rather than kind of putting them in little boxes. I think it's sort of knowing how to sort of change that role, but but not not. I guess what we often do when we do sort of wider studies, we don't, we, we try not to go in assuming the answer's marketing. We're going to go in there looking to see what the, what the challenge might be. But I wonder how, how many advertising agencies have gone down more of a management consultancy kind of route of how do we actually kind of grow your business and shock horror the answer sometimes might not be marketing. It might be other, other things. Absolutely agree. That's a huge transformation, though, because that will demand mm. hiring certain people with certain mm. qualifications mm. Uh, adv to advertising agencies. Yeah. But you come back it's to why you first came into advertising. It was as a smart young person with multiple qualifications, and the triangulation came together. And you went, "Oh my god, this is a this is an industry I have to think, and and every brief's different, and there's that kind of problem solving." So it's it's still the same. I think it's just knowing how. Yeah, it's, it's that burning deck of whether it's research agencies with we're being disrupted all the time, uh, and probably more so sometimes in advertising agencies. But it's going that burning deck is at the end of the day the thing that will save us all is actually being creative and thinking and having bright minds in our in our in our agencies. As you said, relationship is absolutely key, and I think the relationship between the two leaderships, mm. say the leadership, the client leadership, and the agency leadership, is very important. Because yeah. yes, I would love, in so many occasions, I would love to be there at the start when the business problem was discussed and identified, and validated. Uh, but yeah, we don't have the luxury. Yeah, that's right. But it is a transformation. Maybe that will happen. That's why. Um, I feel that boutique agencies and smaller setups they they thrive today mm. because they because they can say that they, they they're a different model or they yes and they they get that relationship probably they have fewer clients but then they have closer relationship yeah, with those okay. clients yeah okay so it's probably more challenging for the the larger agencies where things have changed. Absolutely. been able to change to Absolutely. adjust to that sort of times as Absolutely. well yeah it's interesting isn't it it's just last month one of my ex-colleagues who is now managing a small agency in the middle east he sent me a presentation and he said can you please have a look and let me know what you think and i i usually try to be very honest with people when they ask for my feedback because i don't think things should be sugar-coated when somebody's success depends mm -hmm. on that so i said to him 
This is all so true, but I have seen it several times before. So every large agency today is thinking, what's 2020? You know, what model should we transform into? Yes, it's about flexibility. Yes, it's transformation. Yes, it's embracing digital. It's mobile first. It's all of these things. But it's really difficult for big agencies, and I, I, I feel for them. For them because they're so big, and they, or they've got, a, they've got targets they've got to meet, or they've got tradition. Or like, where, where, why is it so difficult? All of these. And they have people to pay, and they can't suddenly retrain everyone. They can't suddenly restructure everything. Mm. So it's a slow process. And as they say um, in, in change management, the first step is to understand that you need to change. So, and I think luckily they do understand they need to change. So mm. it will happen just slowly mm. because they have people to take care of. And when it comes to people, you know, you need to be very careful. They have staff. Yeah, we interviewed Kim Bowen, who was uh, a leader at Clementer BBDO and now is re- retired, but he talked about the challenge, and it was in ta- talent acquisition towards the end of his uh, uh, role in Clemages in, in Melbourne, uh, based in Melbourne. And he was saying it's just getting harder to a- attract those the best and brightest into advertising because nowadays there's there's entrepreneurship and there's innovation and there's all these other different roles that they, they're going into where maybe 20 years ago creative agencies were seen as the place you went if you were clever and creative and, and had that sort of mind. So, And again, I wonder whether that, that's, that's the key thing. It's, it's, a, it's a category employment brand kind of thing really, isn't it, that we want to we keep attracting the best and brightest thinkers into what we do because that will help. Because it, like advertising talks always about the, the ideas of the things that, that is our... Is our um, it's the thing that keeps us sort of driving forward. It's the, the thing that, um, that that we're built on. We're built on ideas and ideas and creativity, um, and that to me means you need you need you need the best people. You, you need them to come to come to um, ad agencies and research agencies. I think so. Um, I think that agencies they are the think tank, mm-hmm. and what um, I call them, or the the, the process, the outcome is. Logic and magic. Mm-hmm. So I think agencies are the hot houses of logic and magic. And probably clients could see them as outsourcing their logic and magic because that's what happens, right? The strategist and the client servicing would give you, would understand your business strategy, would understand your issues. They would give you that mm. logic part of it, and that will be bridged into magic mm-hmm. by the creative team. So that's what it is. And what experts they rely on, um, it's up to them to decide. I mean, the agencies. We worked with uh, tech startup people, Mm. which has brought them because we needed a very deep perspective on certain startup um, things and on certain technologies. So we brought them in. Again, you know, back to what I said, agencies need to have access to a very large network of experts from every possible walk of life. So that collaboration, that being able to bring people in, um, having been been able to get close to the client's true strategic objectives, that sounds like another key one. Um, And the consumers is a large And the consumers, yeah, okay. Any other thoughts on if if you were going to create a, a, a creative agency for 2020 and beyond, what would you be... What would you be building? Going through 
my career, I always had leaving agencies and starting new uh, roles. I always thought, if only I could take that person with me, and then if only I could take that person with me. And after, you know, 15 years, I thought, if only I could have these people in one team that I trusted so much and that was such fun to work with. Uh, I think that today, the agents, if I were to have an agency, it would be very fluid. It would be really relying on the people that are connected with throughout life, that I trust, that I believe in, and they are strategists, they are suits, they are designers, they are architects. So it's that network, and it even doesn't matter where it is, where people sit. So is it so. less about their roles and more about the people's characteristics and abilities? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I worked with a business development director that we became friends with, and he was just amazing. He could sell anything. And he wasn't even educated in sales or marketing. It's just that personality mm-hmm. put in the right landscape with right coaching and mentorship uh, just brought beautiful results. It's about the personality. It's about finding the right people. Mm-hmm. And today also there are a lot of uh, multiple hats that people wear. Uh, I don't think there is... And that's what I see, particularly in Adelaide. It's quite common that the head of the agency would be doing some strategy work at the same time. Mm. Or a strategy person might actually do a bit of client servicing in terms of uh, putting the the time flow of the campaign or orchestrating different roles coming in at different times. So there is that as well. Mm. And I think that's a very natural evolution. Mm. So in a, in a, that's probably a really good point of in in a smaller market, like say in Adelaide or, or other there's other cities. Adelaide's got a million people for for people listening. Um, and yet we can we'll get on to a moment of what, why you're living in Adelaide now. <laughs> um, in a in a small market, how does an agency prosper? So if you're not in Dubai or a, or a major kind of economic centre, how do you how do you prosper when you're in a smaller market? Would you say? Well, I I haven't worked in a small market yet, so mm. I don't really have a credible answer. I'm just trying to understand that myself. Mm. And I feel that probably it will be all about the right relationships because it seems to me that everyone knows everyone in Adelaide. So what you were talking about in the old times, the leadership of the client and the agency actually had an opportunity to have a strong relationship. Maybe... Um, small markets are blessed with that opportunity mm. to have those relationships. So you can have those deep relationships you build over five years, ten years, yes, or more. But that's really important that then people stay. People don't change jobs every two, three years. Mm. That means again, looking after your people is important. Yeah. Yeah. So that could be the answer, but I'm yet to discover that. I don't yeah. know. So how long have you been in Adelaide for? We've been here just over a year. Yeah. Two weeks over a year, yes. Yeah. And I understand you're renovating a house and your husband is joining you from... Where, where's he at the moment? Uh, my husband is still in the Middle East. Yeah. He's uh, he's working in Oman. Uh, he still has a couple of projects to finish because they're handling quite high-level um, projects, so he cannot just leave. He needs to complete them. 
Yes, and uh, I focused on renovating the house, which was a job and a half, something very, very new for me mm. and very challenging. I like DIY, so I, I understand how things work, uh, but it was very challenging. Mm. Challenging just in terms of bringing, bringing those people together, it sounds like. Bringing the workers together and it's more me. I was not the one doing that. Yeah. Uh, the the project manager did that, but making sure that the quality was right yeah. was challenging because I was not always sure I knew the right answer or I had the right answer. So I was checking, and I also tried not to be very intrusive in what they were doing because they are experts at the end of the day. So I have to trust them, but it's my house, so I wanted to make sure things were done properly. Yeah, good. So your husband comes from Scotland, am I right? He's half Scottish, half Danish. Okay, but not from Australia. Is that no. Right? So he's he's travelled around a lot over his career as well. Yes, he has. Yeah, and you come from Soviet Union. Yeah. So why why Australia? Why why Adelaide? Have you decided to settle here? We chose it very carefully. Um, obviously, we had different options. Russia was an option. The UK was an option. Our son was born in Hungary. He would happily go back to Hungary. I lived in New Zealand briefly for six mm. months, and I really, really liked this part of the world. And also my husband lived here for a year and a half on a study and travel scheme when you know, in his 20s, and he also fell in love with it. So... Just watching Australia over these years, um, we chose it primarily for lifestyle and raising our son. Because yeah. I do believe that this country has a good set of values and it's very, very important. A like so, good set of values? Like what? What would you say our values are? I think Australians in general are always willing to help. And I... I I know it's not good to generalize when it comes to nationalities, but in my personal experience, Australians are genuinely helpful people. And I saw them in other, as tourists in other parts of the world. They always come across as looking forward to helping mm. people. Uh, I think the sense of community is probably the strongest I've ever seen in today's world, which is really, really nice. The attitude to nature is also beautiful. Uh, yesterday my neighbor noticed that a koala baby was abandoned in our tree yeah, okay. and he called koala rescue straight away yeah. so it, it means a lot mm -hmm. also I've been really blessed with neighbors I never had such good neighbors <laughs> that's nice. and I think that that's really common because people do have a sense of community mm. so these are the key key traits yeah. that I really admire so they were your expectations and then you've you've had those expectations exceeded to a certain, certain extent. So the, the reality has matched your expectations. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise we wouldn't be here. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. no, it's a very exciting time coming. And when the house is finished, I can focus much more on work and being useful yeah. and creating value for people. That's good. So I think it's all very, very exciting. And my son is loving the school. How old is your son? Getting new friends. He's 12. Okay, good. That's yeah. a good time to come to Australia. Do you have any observations of Australia that, from an outsider's perspective of, of how we see ourselves, that maybe we're not as strong in that regard as what we might think? Hmm. Don't be negative, but sort of like just, just that. Sometimes when you have an outsider's perspective, maybe sometimes we're not 
who we see, who we think we are. I spoke to so many people, and one word that came out a lot from Australians themselves, which means this is how they see themselves, is the word cliquey. And I feel that the word itself has a bit of negative connotation. But I, I was trying to understand that. I think it's not actually bad to be cliquey. I think it's slightly different meaning, though. I think people really look after each other because it's... Um, I wouldn't say it's a small town. I would say it's a boutique city, Adelaide. So people know a lot of people and they have family, friends, and they're looking after each other. They're looking after their communities. They're helping each other. What's bad in that? What's wrong with that? It's actually very, very good. And that's why you have a strong community. Where it might fail people a little bit is embracing the global knowledge that people from outside bring. Yeah. They might feel too self-sufficient, but there is there is always time to learn. Mm. And one of the, well, I would say, honestly, I had a bit of a shock when I came here and realized that people don't use WhatsApp. And when I say okay. WhatsApp, people say, what's WhatsApp? But then when they go to Bali, everyone uses WhatsApp there, so which is a very, very, very helpful tool for communication. So, and I'm trying to understand why, because obviously it it exceeds the functionalities of all other existing messaging services that I'm mm -hmm. aware of and I'm using. So, I don't know why. Maybe they never thought of it or they were not exposed to it. Yeah, okay. Uh, interesting. Very, maybe it will come, but I don't know. Maybe you have the answer why. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's probably other social media is believed to be able to fill that gap mm. I, I know when and whatsapp comes in maybe when you've got friends or family who are traveling particularly to certain regions because they can't access other social media but it, it's an interesting one of we we have that sense maybe from an australian perspective or i'm sure in other local areas around the world that the world's pretty well consistent everywhere but we're all a little bit different. <laughs> yes. But I think it's beautiful. Like we yeah. have some staff that have come from, we've got a staff member from Singapore and, and one from um, New York. And, and it's interesting how there, there, are, there, there are always differences. And obviously meeting yourself, there are always differences. But there's actually probably more similarities than, than differences, which I always find quite, quite nice. It's, yeah. it's a nice thing, to, nice thing to see that no matter where you are in the world, the fundamentals are... are, are are basically, basically very similar. We started off with you as a young girl, very studious, uh, being easy for your parents, every parent's dream. Uh, what would you suggest for young people to have a successful life, a successful career moving forward? And you can say young people could be kids or it could be adults or it could be young at heart, I don't really mind. What's, what's the, what would you say looking back? Well, I would probably say things that I would want to say to my son. Mm. And I wouldn't be saying that to be patronizing, but I would say that from experience. I would say, at least sometimes, try to listen to your parents. <laughs> because they've lived longer yeah. and they just know more from experience. Yeah. And that can protect you from failing when it's not necessary. I listen to a lot. What sort of things? What would you say the big, the big message you want to pass on to your son? 
I would say. What do you? Sorry, I would say. What would you? What would you hope that that he would do? You know, I had to reassess my view of him in the future mm. myself, especially when we come we came here to Adelaide, a couple of new talents opened up in him, and that's probably thanks to the school. Um, I always had a vision, you know, that he should become this and that. No, that's not right. Yeah. Parents should not have that vision. He should follow his passion. And wherever it takes him, if he's passionate about it, it means he will be good at that. And that's what's important. Really be good at what you want to be good. And then we will support him yeah. in that. So it's really, I, it might sound... Um, like a platitude, but really follow the passion mm. and work hard for it. Because yeah. even though you have talent, there will be people who have similar talent, but they work hard and they'll be more successful. And then, you know, you'll be looking around and thinking all those missed opportunities. And because we only live once, you can't really miss those opportunities that life gives you. So, yeah, l listen to your parents sometimes That's and right. follow your passion. Yeah. And I'm sure parents, if they see that the child is passionate and working towards that, they'll put all the support they can into it. Yeah, and embracing those opportunities, I think, is a really, a really critical one. That yeah, you know, find your passion, embrace your opportunities. Because yeah. we, we we work so hard on our behalf to give those opportunities, so yeah, they should embrace them. We should be thankful for them. And wherever they might lead. As long as they are happy, we'll be happy. Okay, good. That's a good place to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Olga. <laughs> Thank right. you. Thank you, Jason. To comment on today's show, please reach out via Twitter or your favourite social media. You can find me at Jason Dunstone or Square Holes. We are also very excited to launch our new iteration of our website squareholes.com it includes information on our backstory since launching in 2004 including our market research services education offering publishing opportunities opportunity to join our research panel but most importantly we're excited about putting our content into a well presented easy to read front and center format so uh, yep so check that out we have i'm just looking through this, the site at the moment so we've got highlighting some articles around humans becoming robots so we've got one about embrace your ugly and the pratfall effect uh, a podcast interview by with dr philip alvelda the robots are becoming human an article by steve samartino on how to not fear the robots we've got some podcast interviews appearing on my homepage at the moment by dr fiona kerr about imagination and human connection barry bergen about economic and cultural impact michael o'brien about aboriginal history community land and sea philip reedman about the world of wine yana matthews about business growth and leadership uh, we've got different categories of content, so culture and society, entrepreneurs and new markets, marketing, customers and brands, research theory and method. We've got some how-to guides on research and strategy, workshops, etc. Podcast interviews. We've included easy-to-access uh, links to our guest posts. Uh, there's an event there coming up. I can see we've included some free ads 
to the organisations that we sponsor and support, so including Helpman Academy, Zoos SA and South Start. Yeah, I think it's a bit different, so please check it out. Uh, let us know what you think and the website will continue to evolve. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Hooray. Right.